0: Good morning, everyone. Good morning. For those of you who are new here, I'm Chris Dirks, one of the associate pastors, and I'm so glad that you're here with us this morning. Last week, I started a new series called "Listening Prayer in Bounds," and we'll do part two today. And uh, what is this series about? Well, last week we looked at two sides to the hearing God coin. Right on the one side, hearing God's voice is life; it's wonderful. We need to hear more of God's voice and obey it. On the other side, many of us know. Uh, stories of people, so many of them well-meaning people. They're not bad people, but people who have just gone off the rails and done stupid things, made grave errors in judgment because of things they thought they heard in prayer. And so the point of this series, what we're doing here is we want to we be safe. We want to put some biblical guidelines in place For when we're seeking to hear God's voice, whether through listening prayer or just in the spirit, whatever it is, we want to have some biblical guidelines in place so that we can confidently hear His voice on the one hand, but on the other hand, accurately assess and discern the dumb human stuff that sometimes gets mixed in there. Okay? And so the point of this series, again, this series, we're not going to put a bunch of rules in place to make hearing God more difficult. We're putting guidelines in place that are going to release you to feel safe. That while you're listening, you don't have to just do whatever comes into your mind. And so there's a process of testing and looking and seeing what is from God and what is just from me and what is just a mistake. Okay, and so last week we started into guideline number one, which is that when you think you're hearing something from God, the most important piece of advice I can give you is that you first need to look for confirmation before you do something about it. And we're going to spend, uh, we're not even going to finish looking for confirmation today. We're actually going to finish it next week. And we're not going to spend much time on the other guidelines. It's the most important guideline out of all the ones I'm going to give you in this series. The most wisdom I can give you about listening prayer and being safe, hearing God's voice on the one hand, but not giving in to, you know, human error and stuff on the other is to look for confirmation first. And so at the end of this message, we're going to start into, I'm going to show you six tests over the next couple of weeks. Uh, Six tests you can use when you think you're hearing God. You can use these things biblically and to see what's God and what's you or what's the devil or whatever, all right? But before I get to those tests, I actually want to spend the first half of this message answering a question, which I got a whole bunch of times during the week. And it's a very good question about uh, listening prayer and about God and about looking for confirmation. And I think it's going gonna, it's gonna to give us more understanding of this whole process. And Tuesday morning, when I came into the office, uh, Monday's my day off, so Tuesday's my first day of the week. And, and I came in and I had an email in my inbox. And uh, of course, as we know like from last week, time about looking for confirmation, I was telling everybody, you, you've got you've to... Gotta, you know, before you do something about what God's telling you, you got to test it. You've got to make sure it's from God. Well, this person sent an email and said, but doesn't the Bible say we're not supposed to test God? And I thought, that's a very good question, okay? So I fired off a response, but I thought to myself, I just had this niggling thought. You know, I bet you other people had that as well. Well, I got confirmation that Wednesday and Thursday, some more of you sent me emails with the exact same question with different wording. Very, by the way, I love getting questions like that. And so I thought to myself, well, we've got to spend some time here, looking at the difference. What's the difference between asking for a sign and at looking for confirmation and testing God? And the verse that uh, people were asking about, Matthew 4, verse 7, I'll just put it up there. Uh, Jesus answered him. He's talking to Satan here. It is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. And so that is true. And that's why I want to spend a bunch of time on this. The Bible is very clear that we not test God. So I want to make sure that even as I'm preaching this message on you've got to look for confirmation when you think God's speaking to you, I want to make sure that none of us swings into an extreme where we go from looking for confirmation into testing God. But at the same time, I want us to remember too, some people have taken this verse of not testing God, and they've taken it to an extreme where they just can't test the things they get in prayer. And we know from last week, very clearly, 1 John 4 verse 1 says, Beloved, Do not believe every spirit. Don't believe every thought that comes into your head or everything someone else tells you is from God. Don't do it. But test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. And the other passage we looked at last week was 1 Thessalonians 5, 19 to 21, which says, do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Okay, so on the one hand, we've got don't test God. On the other hand, we've got, but you should test what you're hearing. Okay, and when it comes to listening prayer, when when I'm talking about looking for confirmation, I want to be very clear about this. When we're talking about looking for confirmation, we're talking about testing the spirits, not testing God. Those are two separate things. The Spirit, the Spirit is totally different between these two things, okay? The Spirit behind looking for confirmation is, I don't trust myself. The spirit behind testing God is you're questioning his goodness, you're questioning his plans, you're questioning his ability. That's the spirit behind testing God. But when you're testing what you hear in listening prayer, it's not that you're questioning God's goodness or his ability, you're questioning your ability to hear him properly. That's a big difference. Now, the reason I want to spend so much time looking at this is because, so in the spirit these are two totally different things. One is you don't trust God, one is you don't trust yourself. But in practice, these things can sometimes look very similar. And that's why a number of you were asking me the question. In practice, sometimes from the outside, on the inside, the spirit of what you're doing is totally opposite between these two things. But from the outside, other people watching, they sometimes look the same. The, the line between testing God and looking for confirmation sometimes gets blurry. And so people, some people were asking me this week, they were, okay, on the one hand, we saw last week, Gideon asks for a sign, he asks for confirmation, God's happy to give it to him, he even gives him more confirmation than he asks for. On the other hand, you look at Luke chapter 1, and John the Baptist's father, Zechariah, asks for a sign, and God rebukes him, and puts the mute button on him, and says he can't speak until John the Baptist is born. Okay? So on the outside, these two things look the same, they both ask for a sign, but God's happy in one, he's not happy in the other. And it comes down to an attitude of the heart. And that's what I want you to get. But in the first half of this message, what I want to do is we're going to look at three different examples in Scripture of different ways that people test God, and then we're going to contrast that. In each case, we're going to contrast that with the difference between that and when you're looking for confirmation and listening prayer. And we're going to learn a lot about listening prayer and about God in the process. And at the end of this, I think you're going to have a good, clear line in your mind of which is which. And then because the Bible is clear as we looked at last week, we need to look for confirmation. Okay? So bow your heads with me, close your eyes, and then we'll get into this, all right? Heavenly Father, I just want to thank you that you are unlike any of the gods of other religions, Father. You love to speak to us, and uh, we need to hear your voice more. And, in the, and, Je- and Jesus said that my sheep hear my voice. Father, I, I want through this message and through this series that we're going to be able to better hear your voice. We need to obey it more. We need to love it more. We need to follow you more intimately and closely. And I pray that that would be the result of this message and this series. I pray that your Holy Spirit would help us to concentrate here this morning. I pray that you would guide the words that are coming out of my mouth and that the scriptures would all come together and illuminate what it is that you want from each of us. In Jesus' name, amen. First uh, test, first way that people test God that I want to look at is what I call the grumbling and complaining test. If we go back to Matthew 4, verse 7, which is kind of where these questions are coming from, where Jesus said, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. He's actually quoting there, so we want to figure out what does it mean to test God, right? We, he's quoting there Deuteronomy 6, verse 16, which says, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massa. Now, the word Massa actually means testing, Okay. And so, whatever happened at Massa to give it its name, it defines in a big way what it means to test God, okay? So, Exodus chapter 17, verses 1 to 7 gives us the story of how Massa got its name. I'm going to just read you those seven verses. We're going to look at this story, and you're going to find the spirit behind what it means to test God, all right? Exodus 17, verse 1, at the Lord's command, the whole community of Israel left the wilderness of sin and moved from place to place. Eventually, they camped at Rephidim, but there was no water there for the people to drink. So once more, the people complained against Moses. Give us water to drink, they demanded. Quiet, Moses replied. Why are you complaining against me? For some of you, you're going, I just had this conversation with my kids this morning. But uh, why are you complaining against me, and why are you testing the Lord? But tormented by thirst, they continued to argue with Moses. Why did you bring us out of Egypt? Are you trying to kill us, our children, and our livestock with thirst? Then Moses cried out to the Lord, what should I do with these people? They are ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, walk out in front of the people. Take your staff, the one you used when you struck the water of the Nile, and call some of the elders of Israel to join you. I will stand before you on the rock at Mount Sinai. Strike the rock and water will come gushing out. Then the people will be able to drink. So Moses struck the rock, as he was told, and water gushed out as the elders looked on. Moses named the place Massah, which means test, and Meribah, which means arguing, because the people of Israel argued with Moses and tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord here with us or not? So what is testing the Lord? There's three parts to the grumbling and complaining test, and it just starts with grumbling and complaining, okay? I want you to think about, I just, just think about this for a little bit, what's happening here. This story is so familiar to us that I think we just lose track sometimes of what's really happening and why God gets so mad in this story. Okay? God has just delivered the children of Israel from the worst bondage imaginable. I mean, they were in slavery in Egypt. The Egyptians were killing their kids. They were forced, forced labor. They were whipping them, beating them, killing them. I mean, it was horrible. Okay? And uh, God has just rescued them, not because of something they did, not because of anything. Just, he just chooses in His grace and He just loves them and He brings them out of Egypt. There's a whole bunch of miracles. There's no way they could have gotten out of Egypt without supernatural help. He sends 10 massive plagues on the Egyptians. Then the Egyptian army chases them to kill them. They think, now we're doomed. He splits the sea. They come across the sea. I mean, he has just done spectacular things because of his love for them. Okay? Think about that. Now, within days of these things happening, they get a little thirsty, and they're grumbling and complaining. Why did you bring us out of Egypt? And that tests God. They totally ignore all the good things God has done for them, just done for them, and focus only on this little problem that they have right now, which in the grand scheme of things is nothing compared to what he's already done. That tests God. Now, a lot of people here today say, well, we would never do that. I mean, if, if I had been in Egypt and had been rescued, I would be so grateful to God, and I would not have been, you know, at Mass, I would not have grumbled. Well, here's the thing. Do you ever grumble or complain? Do you ever grumble or complain? Because here, I, I know something, and that is this. If you have accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, God has done something far better for you than deliver you from Egypt. If you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, okay, then let's get a little perspective here because here's what God did for you. He sent his only son, whom he loves, to die, not because of something you did, not because you deserved it, not because you even asked him to do it. He just did it because he loves you. He sent his son to die so that you wouldn't have to spend forever and ever and ever and ever without end in physical torment in a place called hell. If God never did anything else for you the rest of your life, that alone would be enough for you to get up every single morning and dance a little jig in your bedroom. <laughs> I and mean, we're all kind of laughing, getting, "Hey, yeah, that's what it sounds like. Isn't that true? I mean, we look at this story, we say, well, you know, how could they be so ungrateful? He just rescued them out of Egypt. And my question and God's question to all of us as believers, this is why Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5.18, he says, Be thankful in all things. The reason he says be thankful in all things is because no matter what things are going on in your life, God has already done something that is spectacularly amazing for you. But what happens with many Christians is we totally forget what God has saved us from. Not to mention the fact that he's actually done more. I bet you there's not a single person here who he hasn't done another thousand amazing things on top of that. I just mention that because that's all he needed to have done. But the fact of the matter is, on top of that yet, he's given all of us another thousand or two thousand amazing blessings in our lives, I'm sure. But we throw out all of that, just like the children of Israel do. We turn our back on what he's rescued us from, and what he saved us from, and what he sacrificed, and we begin to focus, we get into a place where we have a grumbling and complaining spirit. And here's the thing, we have our list of sins which are bad, okay? Someone who goes to the bar on a Friday night, that's really a bad place to be and adultery and you know, all the sins. Yeah, and okay, getting drunk and doing those things is very bad. Then we have our sins like ingratitude, which we think, well, everybody kind of has, this. it's a white collar crime. But here's the thing, God says, do not test me in gratitude tests god ingratitude really tests him and you say i i'm still not getting this you moms out there know a little bit how god feels isn't this true okay you slave for a few hours before supper and you put together this great supper and it's healthy and it's colorful and it's different than what you had yesterday which is amazing in and of itself you creatively you're constantly thinking and cooking and making okay And then you put this stuff in front of your kids, and what do they say? I don't want it. Why do you make this all sort of stuff? Does that not test you? Okay? (laughs) You put something in, you try to do something good, they're not thankful. Now multiply that by about a billion, you're starting to understand how God views an ungrateful Christian. It tests him. Okay? And again, this is not to say that people have to be happy when bad things are happening to them, but it's a spirit in your life. And if you have a spirit of grumbling and complaining, that seed will make almost everything you do something that tests God. See, it's what's on the inside that makes it a test for God. And a person who has a grumbling and complaining spirit, pretty much anything they do, even if it looks good on the outside, is actually testing God. And if you stew in your grumbling and complaining and negativity for long enough, I'll tell you what will happen next, is you'll start to actually blame and accuse God. You'll actually start to blame and accuse God. You look at Exodus 17 verse 3. What did the Israelites say? They should have said, oh, thank you for taking us out of Egypt. But the very thing God had blessed them with, they turned it into an accusation. And they said, why did you bring us out of Egypt? Did you bring us here to kill us? And this is making God go, "Mm." he's being tested And again, many Christians would say, well, we wouldn't do that to God, but actually the truth of the matter is, many Christians do this to God. If you stew and you're grumbling and complaining long enough, uh, you probably won't do it consciously, but you'll do it subconsciously. People will do it. And they have questions in their mind to God, like, why did you ever let me marry this man? Right? Some of you are nervous to laugh at that one. That's okay, because he's sitting beside you. Why did you ever give me this job? Never mind that you prayed for a job and you prayed for it and you prayed for it and you prayed for it and then God gave you this job and you're working in that hog barn or wherever it is and now three years later, you're like, why did he ever give me this job? Why did he give me these kids? Or maybe you're part of this whole group over here and you'll hear, uh, and following God has made my life harder and I've actually heard some of these things. Following God has made my life harder. Ever since I started following God, my life has gotten harder. I used to have all these friends, but now I can't do any of that fun stuff. I've lost all my friends. And, you know, me and my girlfriend, we used to have sex all the time, and our relationship was great. Now we have to start living pure, and now our relationship isn't as good. And I used to in my business make all kinds of money but now I can't do shady deals and I have integrity and I have to tithe and all these sorts of things. And we take God's good laws and the good things He's blessed us with and we actually somehow turn those good things into an accusation and rather than being grateful for them we throw them back in His face. That really tests God. It's not a minor sin. Jesus said, do not test the Lord your God. This is what the Israelites did at Massa and it tested Him. It makes them angry. And you know, if you stew in the... In the, in the complaining and the grumbling long enough and you start to move to blame. And again, a lot of it is the subconscious. It's a feeling you start to have towards God. You start to have hard feelings toward Him. You'll end up in a place where, again, too many Christians are. Probably all of us are at various times, but we need to get out of it quickly when we're there. And you actually come to a place where you begin to question God's character and His love and His motives. And again, you probably won't have the, the, the guts to say it out loud because you're afraid God will strike you dead or something. But inside, you'll start to have feelings like, God doesn't listen to me. God doesn't care about what's happening to me. He doesn't answer prayers. This is exactly what the Israelites did. Exodus 17, 7. The people of Israel tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord here with us or not? He just rescued them. Now they say he's abandoned us. That tests God when he's done so much for you, and then you say, oh, I don't think he's good. And some Christians even get passive-aggressive towards God. And they withdraw from prayer and they withdraw from church and they withdraw from these things because they're trying to get back at God somehow. They're trying to hurt God somehow because they feel like he hasn't done right by them. They've had too much suffering in their life. He hasn't come through for them. That's testing God. And the Bible is very clear, do not test God. Now, let's contrast that spirit of grumbling and complaining with a person who's just genuinely, they want to follow God no matter what he does. And they feel like he's saying something to them and they just need some signs, they need some help and confirmation to make sure that it's him and not them. Totally different spirit there. One is testing God, one is not even close to testing God. God loves to answer this person. Okay, there's a second way that people test God and this one really ties in with the looking for confirmation one. And this is where people can be confused. I call this test the making God prove himself to you test. I made that name up just so you know, you won't find it in a commentary. The making God prove himself to you test. If we go back to Matthew 4, 7. So we looked at what Jesus said, do not test the Lord your God. We looked at the Old Testament context, what he was quoting from there. Now let's look at the New Testament context. What is the context in which Jesus is using this in Matthew chapter 4? And in Matthew chapter 4, what's happening is this. Jesus goes into the wilderness for 40 days and he's fasting and he's tempted by the devil, right? The three temptations, very famous story. And it's in the second temptation that Jesus says to Satan, do not test the Lord your God. Let's find out what he calls testing God. Matthew 4, verses 5 to 7. Then the devil took him to the holy city, that's Jerusalem, and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. And Jesus said to him, again it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. So what's happening here? I'm not sure of all the background information here, but whatever's happening, Satan isn't sure that Jesus is the Son of God. I mean, he has a good idea. That's why he's there personally tempting him. But Satan's not sure, and somehow he's trying to maybe unsettle Jesus. I'm not sure, but he comes up to him and he says, you have to prove yourself. Like, if you are the Son of God, come and let's do this. You jump off the temple because there's a psalm that says that he won't let you hit the ground. And so Satan comes and says, I want you to do a sign to prove to me and to yourself that you are God. Well, and of course, everybody here goes, oh yeah, obviously that's testing God because you can't ask God for signs, that's testing God. Well, actually, it's not that simple. Because the interesting thing is, if you go through the New Testament, you will find over and over and over again that Jesus often did miracles, which he expressly said, and I'm going to show you a passage in just a moment, but Jesus would expressly say after doing a miracle that he did that to prove himself to be God to the people who were around him. So it's interesting, Satan asks for a miracle, a sign, to prove that Jesus is God, and Jesus says, you're testing God. But then, over here, we'll find throughout the rest of the New Testament, Jesus over and over and over again does miracles and signs to prove that he's God. So why is it bad when Satan asks him to do that? And the answer is this, and this is again the heart behind testing as opposed to looking for confirmation. The answer is that in the case of Satan, Satan is initiating what Jesus has to do in order for Jesus to prove himself to Satan. Satan is setting up a hoop and saying to Jesus, you jump through this hoop and I'll believe you're the Son of God. And Jesus says, "Uh, no, Satan. You don't tell me what I have to do in order to prove myself to you. If you want to know if I'm the Son of God... Just You should have just watched the stars when I was born, because when I was born, a whole bunch of stars aligned, and it was such a powerful sign that wise men from Persia saw it and knew I was the Son of God just from that. And you could have watched at my baptism just a month ago, when I was baptized by John the Baptist, and a voice thundered from heaven while a dove flew down onto my shoulder, and a voice thundered, this is my Son in whom I'm well pleased. And Satan, if you want to find out if I'm the Son of God, just watch me the next three years. Because I'm going to heal the, the blind and the lame and the sick and the, and the possessed. And I'm going to do all these miracles. I will give you more than enough proof that I'm the son of God. But you don't come to me and tell me to do a magic trick for you in order to prove myself to you. That spirit of Satan initiating Jesus, what Jesus has to do, giving him an ultimatum, what Jesus has to do in order to prove himself to Satan, that's testing God. Now I'm going to show you a few more passages because the Pharisees did the same thing okay, in just a moment, but I want to make this really practical, okay? So let's set up a hypothetical scenario, okay? And I want to show you the difference between testing God and looking for confirmation. Let's say that you know someone, someone you love is very sick, okay? And that, I mean, that's a hard thing to go through, okay? And it should, it is, it's painful. There's no way around it that it's just painful. But you know, in painful experiences like that, we always have a choice. There's two ways we can respond to the pain we're in when someone we know is sick or suffering. We can respond in a way that makes us hard to God or we can respond in a way that makes us soft to God. And we always have these choices. When we face hard things in life, we can respond in a way that makes us hard to God or soft to God. Okay? Now imagine that someone you know is very sick and that is a painful thing. But you respond in a way that makes, starts to make you hard and bitter towards God. And finally, one day, you decide, and it probably doesn't happen in one day. These things, the way the human spirit works, it happens over a slow process. But you come to a point where you eventually tell God in prayer, and you say, you better heal this person. And if you don't heal this person, I don't even believe you exist anymore. I just, if I don't see you do a miracle here, I don't believe you exist or, I don't believe you're good. If you don't heal this person, and maybe, again, you might not consciously say these things, but this is how you're responding in your spirit. If you don't heal this person, you're not good. I'm not go- I'm going to stop going to church. I'm going to stop praying. I'm going to stop telling people about you because I'm mad at you. It's an ultimatum. God, you're going to heal this person or else. You're going to heal this person or I'm going to withdraw from you. You're going to heal this person or I'm not going to believe in you. That's an ultimatum. That is testing God. God says, you don't tell me what I'm going to do or not do. You trust in me in painful things. Now contrast that, testing God, giving him an ultimatum, telling him what he must do in order to prove his goodness to you or prove his existence to you. Contrast that with someone who's just looking for confirmation. You have a person over here, they know some same situation, someone that they know is sick, it's a painful thing, but they've decided that no matter what, they're going to love Jesus and trust him and get his strength to get through it. And they're totally committed that if the person doesn't get well, they still love Jesus. And if the person gets well, hallelujah, and they still love Jesus. But either way, there's no ultimatum here. They love Jesus. And they're committed to following Him and they're trusting Him. And one day, they're praying and they think they hear in prayer that God says, He's going to heal this person. Now what do they do? Do they run over to everybody and say, God's going to heal you? No, no, no. You could really hurt someone. What if you're, you could just be mishearing something. Maybe God's just telling you to pray something. Or maybe you're just hearing your desires. So now this person has some wisdom, and they, either way, if God doesn't heal, they still love. They're not giving God an ultimatum, but they just want to make sure that they're hearing correctly and that they're living wisely, so they press in for some confirmation. Looking for confirmation like that is a lot different than giving God an ultimatum, is it not? <coughs> Let me show you about the Pharisees too, because they initiated with God too. Matthew 12, 38-39. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. Okay? Notice again, they're coming to Jesus. Do, do a magic trick. Do something and we'll believe in you. And he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it. Now, some people take this verse again and they say you can never ask for confirmation because then you're an evil and adulterous generation. So if you think you're hearing from something from God, you better just go and do it because otherwise you're like the Pharisees. That is, those two things are not at all alike. Let me show you John chapter 10. The fact that people needed miracles in order to have confirmation, the fact that people need signs in order to have confirmation, Jesus totally gets that. John 10, 37 to 38. He says, do not believe me unless I do what my Father does, but if I do it, even though you do not believe me, believe the miracles. Jesus is more than happy. He gave, has given many proofs of himself, which we have in the Gospels. God has given many proofs of himself in creation. He's given many, many proofs of himself. And when you think that you're hearing him, he'll be glad to give you many proofs of confirmation, as we'll see a little later in this message. Believe the miracles, that you may know and understand that the Father is, me, is in me and I am the Father. So why then does he get mad at the Pharisees when they ask? I'll tell you why. Because they're giving him an ultimatum. They say, I want you to do something in front of me right now or I'm not going to believe in you. And you just think about the gall that they have to say this because these men have personally, they have personally seen, okay? Because the Pharisees have seen Jesus now heal by this point dozens of people. Blind, lame, sick, demon-possessed, they've seen him heal dozens of people. In fact, they've been mad at him for most of them because he has a penchant for doing it on the Sabbath just to bug them, okay? They've seen him heal tons of people. They have seen him twice, twice. He didn't hide these things. They have twice seen him feed thousands of people with nothing more basically than a bagged lunch. One time he fed over 15,000 people with a few loaves and two fishes. Another time he fed about 12,000 people with just a few loaves. They've seen him do that. They have seen him raise Lazarus from the dead. And if all of these miracles and spectacular signs aren't enough, he's given them scriptural prophetic signs, many of them. And these guys know the scriptures Daniel 9, 24 to 27 was in Jesus' time. Nowadays, many Christians don't know about Daniel 9, 24 to 27. In Jesus' day, all the religious leaders knew. They had studied that. Daniel 9, 24 to 27 was one of their most famous prophecies. And if you read Daniel 9, 24 to 27, Daniel gave a prophecy. He said 483 years after... The, the, the decree goes out to rebuild Jerusalem, which is after the Babylonian exile, because Daniel was in Babylonian exile. He gives a prophecy, 483 years exactly after the end of Babylonian exile, when the, temple, the decree goes out to rebuild the temple, an anointed one, a Messiah, is going to come along. They knew this prophecy very well, and they had been counting the years. And they were waiting to see what's going to happen in year number 483. 483. You want to know what happened in year number 483? Jesus appears on the scene and gets baptized by John the Baptist in exactly the 483rd year. And at his baptism, a voice thunders from heaven, and like I said before, and says, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. And right after that, Jesus starts traveling around the countryside doing all kinds of miracles. The Bible is screaming to these people, this is the Messiah. But you know what these guys do? They take, he, Jesus is giving them scads of proof. Biblical prophecies fulfilled, miracles by the dozen. He's given them scads and scads of proof. They take all of that proof and they throw it out the window. They say, that's not what we want. We want you to do something in front of us right now, like levitate or call down fire or something like that. And Jesus says, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign like that. That's testing God. You take all of his, the stuff he's already done for you, you throw it out the window and you say, now you do something for me right now or I won't believe in you. Now, the amazing thing to me about Jesus is they ask for a sign. He calls them evil, but then he does promise them another sign. He just won't do the one that they want him to do right then. He's Jesus. You don't tell Jesus what to do. So look what he says. I'll just finish the passage because I just like this. Okay? But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, great fish, so will a son of man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jesus says, okay, you want a sign? I'm going to give you one more. It beats all the other ones so far. I'm going to die, be dead for three days, and then raise again. He's happy to give us signs. He's happy to give us confirmations, but it's the Spirit. Are you telling him what he must do or you're going to be mad at him or not believe in him or whatever? I want to give you one more hypothetical situation, because again, in all this, I just want to make it really practical so you can see clearly the difference between giving God ultimatums and looking for confirmation. So imagine that you are working at a job that you really do not like. Maybe you would even say that you hate it, okay? And there's this other job, maybe it's in the same company where you're at or somewhere in town or whatever, but it's another job that you would really like to have, but you don't think you could ever have it, it would take a miracle for you to get it, because whatever, you don't have the connections, you don't have the experiences, whatever, Now let's imagine that you have a a grumbling and complaining spirit. You have a negative outlook on life. You're not grateful in your walk with God. You're not thankful for all the things he's done for you. You just focus on the negative things. And so you have a bit of a hard spirit rising up in you towards God. And again, these are not things that we we human beings don't work this way that one day all of a sudden you're mad at God. It's It's a build up. There's a hardening of the edges inside of you towards God. And then maybe you mix in there some bad theology. You're watching on TV and you're watching some of these word of faith preachers. They're a dime a dozen. There's lots of them. And they're telling you things like, if, you know, God just wants to bless you, bless you, bless you, bless you, bless you. And so whatever you claim, he's going to give it to you. You can just name it. So now you mix in. You've got a bit of a hard edge inside of you, and you mix in a little bit of bad theology, and suddenly you come up with this idea, not from God. It's not him initiating. It's not you seeking him. You decide, you know what? I am tired of working this this job. I'm a child of the king. I've I've actually heard some of these preachers preach like this. I'm a child of the king. Why would I not travel first class in an airplane? Because I'm a child of the king. Never mind that there's hundreds of millions of Chinese Christians. I'm going on a rabbit trail here, but let's just leave that. But anyway, you get this hard edge toward God where I'm a child of the king, and that means I'm going to be treated like royalty. So I'm done working this job that I don't like because I'm a child of the king, and I'm going to quit this job, and in faith, but this isn't faith, by the way. When you make up a miracle you want from God and it's you initiating, it's testing God, not faith. But you tell God what he's going to do. You say, I'm going to quit this job. I'm going to take a step of faith, and God's going to give me this other job that I want. And now, and now you're telling everybody else, oh, this is what God's going to do for me, all this sort of stuff. And your prayer times you're saying, hey, you're, you're telling God you're going to give me this job or I'm going to be in trouble. And he's saying, you're right. <laughs> you're very right you're going to be in trouble because I didn't tell you to quit your job. And I didn't tell you I was going to give you this other one. You're on your own. You're testing me and telling me what I have to do. It's testing God. Let's contrast that with a person looking for confirmation. They, same situation. They're working at a job that they don't like. Maybe they would even say they hate it. There's another job they would really like to have, but they're submitted to God, and they say, God, as long as this is the job you've given me, I'm actually thankful that I have bread on the table. Do you see gratitude there? I'm just thankful, Lord. There's tons of people in the world that have nothing. They live hand to mouth. So I'm thankful, even though this job isn't the one that I would you know, just get up raving about every morning, I'm just thankful to have something. And God, I'm going to honor you in this job. And you just work, and you're just honoring God. And then one day you're praying, and you get a sense you feel like, did God just tell me that he's going to give me this other job? Well, now you're not sure because you know you can't afford to just quit a job and take a step of faith if it's not God. So you lay out a couple of fleeces. You're asking for a sign, but it's not an ultimatum. You say to God, Lord, if it's really you, I just want to know that it's you. If it's you that's saying this, before I do something dumb, it could just be, you know, yesterday's enchiladas or something weird, okay? If it's you, could you bring a couple of this circumstance and this circumstance? Could you bring these things together, and then I'll kind of know that you're, that you're bringing this thing along. Then I'll take the next step. Do you see the difference there between an ultimatum and looking for confirmation? Totally different things. Totally different things. There's a third way that people test God. It's called the doubting God's ability test. and I'm not going to spend any time on this one. But uh, you can look it up. Luke chapter 1. as a story I alluded to before. It's John the Baptist's dad. And a lot of people just go, Gideon looks for a sign? How come Gideon gets it? And John about, or, you know, Zechariah looks for a sign and he gets his mouth taped shut for 9 or 10 months or whatever it is. Okay? What's the difference? The difference is God sees the heart. Zechariah wasn't, didn't, when Zechariah asked for a sign... The angel Gabriel shows up to him while he's working in the temple and says, I'm going to give you and Elizabeth a son. Zechariah and Elizabeth are very, very old. Zechariah says, I need a sign to prove it. But the reason he's asking for a sign, God sees the heart and the reason he's asking for the sign is not because he doubts himself and what he's hearing. He doubts God's ability to do it. So the angel says, okay, you want a sign? You're actually, you have an unbelieving heart. You doubt that God can do what he said he's going to do. So here's your sign. You can't talk. Now again, in God's mercy, you know what I love about God? He doesn't kill Zechariah. He just, you're not going to talk. I'm going to give you a sign. It's not a good one. He gives him a little rebuke. But that's the difference. Again, testing God is often a thing of the heart. So while we're in listening prayer, we want to always doubt ourselves. Is this me? Is this the devil? Is this God speaking? So I'm looking for confirmation. But we never want to come to a place where we're doubting God, his character, his power, and those sorts of things, right? It's testing God. Those are the difference. Let's switch gears now, and let's answer the question, how do we get confirmation? It's important that we get confirmation. It's important that we test the spirits. How do we get confirmation? When you think you're hearing God say something to you, before you take that step, you want to make sure that it's really God and not just you. How do we do that? Okay? And so I want to show you six tests. There's actually many more in Scripture, okay? Okay? There's lots of tests in Scripture, and you can find lots of them just by reading your Bible, okay? But I want to just go through six. We're only going to get through two today, and we'll just carry on next week. But I want to go through six tests you can use. And the reason I picked these six is because all six of these can be found in one New Testament story. And it's a famous story. I'm going to read you a whole chunk of it in just a moment. But it's a story in Acts chapter 10, verse 2-11. So two chapters, Acts chapter 10 and 11. And it's the story of the first Gentile convert, okay? First Gentile convert was a Roman centurion named Cornelius, okay? And so let me just give you a little background. I'm going to read you the first 17 verses of Acts chapter 11, but just a little bit of background. If you read Acts chapters 1 through 9, uh, you're going to read the story of how the early church, Jesus dies on the cross, right? He raises from the dead. 40 days after that, he goes back to heaven. 10 days after that, we have Pentecost. The Holy Spirit comes down on the disciples. And there's a whole bunch of people there from all over the world. And thousands of people get saved. And then Acts chapter 2 to 9 is just thousands of people getting saved. And the church is growing. And awesome stuff is happening. Miracles. People love each other. People are giving everything they have to the poor. There's just one thing, one important thing that is missing here. And that is Gentile believers. Because you've got thousands of people getting saved. But Acts 1 to 9, every single one who gets saved is a Jew. They're from all over the world, but they're all Jews. Okay? Okay? Now the thing is, none of the Jewish believers were bothered by this. No one, you look at Acts chapter 1 to 9, no one's going, hmm, no Gentiles are getting saved. Nobody's bothered, nobody's bugged, and it's not that they're not loving people. I mean, you've got the 12 disciples, Peter and all these people. They're not uncaring. They don't hate Gentiles. But nobody's bothered by the fact that it's only Jewish people getting saved, and the reason they're not bothered is because up to that point in time, that's how things had always been. In the Old Testament, if you wanted to become part of the people of God, you couldn't just ask Jesus into your heart. If you wanted to become part of the people of God, you had to become a Jew, because the Jews were the people of God. So, if, you know, if, if, if me, Chris Dirksen, in the Old Testament, you know, if you, if I want to become a people of God, I've got to convert over to Judaism. I've got to get in with the Jewish customs, uh, and you have to commit all the way, because you have to get circumcised. There's just no way around it, Okay. So uh, that kind of lowered, you know, how many people were signing up, okay? And, uh, but anyway, you had to become a Jewish person. And so you have in the Old Testament, you've got these laws. You've got one set of laws. You've got don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't lie. Those applied to everybody, even the Gentiles. But then you had a separate list of laws, which was just designed to keep Jews and Gentiles separate. So you have circumcision, and you have a whole bunch of eating laws, what, and they're not moral laws. The Gentiles cannot do any of these things and they're not sinning. It's just for Jews. And the reason they have these laws is because these are the people of God and the, everybody else is not the people of God. You've got to keep them from getting mixed together. Okay? So now Jesus comes along. He die, all of his disciples are Jewish. He dies on the cross. He rises from the grave. The Holy Spirit comes down and the Jews just, they're all getting saved. This is amazing. And nobody realizes that God is about to bring about an spectacular tectonic shift in the spiritual realm, and he's actually going to graft Gentiles into this covenant. By the way, just a little point of trivia. Some of you will not care, some of you will, but the new covenant was actually not made with the church. It was made with the Jews. God never made a covenant with the church. All the covenants were made with the Jews, but according to Romans, God's in God's mercy, and I love them, and it's so amazing, us Gentiles get to be grafted, in, and we don't have to become Jews to be saved. But anyway, I digress okay? The Jewish believers have no concept that God is about to do this, okay? He's about to do something massive. Now, there's only one problem. You've got everybody in the church is a Jew, nobody outside of the church is a Gentile, and God's going, and he's got all these laws to keep them separate. And so God scratches his head, really he doesn't. I know that, obviously, I'm just human, just a little bit here, okay? How are you going to get Jews to go over here and win Gentiles to Jesus? Because they won't even eat together. They can't eat together. They're not allowed. That's what the laws tell them. You can't eat together. And again, these people aren't bad. I mean, you talk to Peter. You want to go visit a Gentile and win him to Christ? No, what are you, crazy? And he's not a bad person. He would love for that Gentile to be saved, but that Gentile has to do one thing. He has to become a Jew. And so God wants these Jews to witness the Gentiles. So he's going go to the, he's gonna start with the church leader. He's going to go to Peter. And he's going to speak to him. He's going to tell him, I want you to go and witness the Gentiles. Now, here's the thing think of the risk Peter has to take. I mean, it's going to take more than God just talking to Peter once. It's going to take more than a thought in the head because if Peter gets a thought in his head, go and visit and witness this Gentile over here, he's going to say, That's not God. It's going to take more than a thought. And God knows this in his mercy. He knows he's going to have to give Peter a whole bunch of confirmations in order to get him to a place where he realizes this really is God, and he's going to go over here and win, win a Gentile to Jesus. And so we have the story, Acts chapter ten. Blanket comes down, and there's Gentile foods on there that Jews aren't allowed to eat. And Peter says, "No way am I going to eat that." And then we have, a, and I'm going to read you a bunch of stuff in just a moment. But you get a bunch of uh, sequence of events. Peter ends up at Cornelius's house. Okay. And now Peter is going to, now again, I want you to think of the risk Peter is taking when he does it. He's taking a real big risk. Think about this from his point of view. First of all, he's risking his reputation. Like to go to a Gentile's house, he's risking his reputation. He's risking a massive split in the church. And possibly that split could be him on one side and everybody else on the other, okay? He's risking relationships, everything. So he's got to be sure. Now at the end of this, he goes and he witnesses to Cornelius. Cornelius gets saved. And of course, the church leaders get mad. They're like, what are you doing? And he has to come and he has to defend himself as to how he knows it was God speaking to him. Acts chapter 11 is the account of Peter defending himself to the church leaders. That's what I'm going to read to you now. And he's going to go through all the confirmations he got which prove it really was God and not just yesterday's tacos or whatever. Okay? So we're going to read this now and you're going to see six points of confirmation. The beauty of this story is that every one of these six points of confirmation that Peter tells the church, he says, I know it's God because look at this. This, 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 and this. And at the end they go, wow. And the six points of confirmation that he gets are the same six points of confirmation that you and I can look for when we think we're hearing from God. And that's why I love this story. So let me read it to you. Acts chapter 11, verse 1. Soon the news reached the apostles and other believers in Judea that the Gentiles had received the word of God. But when Peter arrived back in Jerusalem, the Jewish believers criticized him. You entered the home of Gentiles and even ate with them. They said, Then Peter told them exactly what had happened. I was in the town of Joppa, he said. And while I was praying, I went into a trance and saw a vision. Something like a large sheet was let down by its four corners from the sky. And it came right down to me. When I looked inside the sheet, I saw all sorts of small animals, wild animals, reptiles and birds. So foods that Gentiles could eat but not choose. And I heard a voice say, get up, Peter, kill and eat them. Now, stop there. This isn't a confirmation point here. This is just Peter hearing God's voice, right? This is where it always starts. Whether it's a vision or a picture a word or a thought or just a sense you get, It starts with, you hear the voice of God. But I want you to notice, Peter does not realize it's the voice of God at first, just like we don't always realize either. And sometimes it isn't God, that's why we don't want to just take things right away. So Peter says, no, Lord. Whoa, I replied. I have never eaten anything that our Jewish laws have declared impure, unclean. So he he thinks, you know, God speaks to him, but that's, no, he's going to need confirmation. Okay. But the voice from heaven spoke again, do not call something unclean if God has made it clean. This happened three times. Here's Peter's first point of confirmation, it gets repeated again and again and again. And the first point of confirmation, one of the first things God will do sometimes when he's speaking to you is, or that you know he's speaking to you is, is there a thought that keeps coming to your mind that you just can't get rid of? Is there a thought that just it's just there with you and it's, and it's some burden or something, you know, you, there's this ministry you feel like you have a heart for that needs to get started, you need to get involved in, and you just can't get rid of it, that might be God. Because in his mercy, he knows that we need confirmation and one of the ways he'll speak to us is he'll just keep bringing it back to us. So Peter gets the same vision three times. The first one could have been, oh, I'm just hungry, it's almost lunchtime. But by the third time, it's like, okay, what's going on here, right? Three times he gets it. This happened three times before the sheet and all it contained was pulled back up to heaven. Just then, three men who had been sent from Caesarea arrived at the house we were staying in. Here he gets the second point of confirmation. He gets circumstantial evidence coming in line with this vision. Okay? So he, first he gets three visions in a row, the same thing, over and over and over again. Oh, I wonder what that's all about. And then just as, a vision, as the third vision ends, three Gentiles show up at his door. Now, that doesn't happen every day, and the fact that it's one after the other, circumstances here are coming in line with what he thinks he's hearing from God. So we have a second point of confirmation. We have some circumstantial evidence, right? So the Holy Spirit told me to go with them and not to worry that they were Gentiles. These six brothers here, and he points to some Jewish people who were with him, these six brothers here accompanied me, and we soon entered the home of the man who had sent for us, who is the Roman centurion Cornelius. He's named in Acts 10. And he told us how an angel had appeared to him in his home and had told him, send messengers to Joppa and summon a man named Simon Peter. Now here, Peter gets a third piece of confirmation. It's circumstantial evidence again, but with a supernatural flair. Because Peter and Cornelius don't know each other from a hole in the ground they've never met. They've never even heard of each other. Peter comes to this, three guys come pick Peter up, he goes to this guy's house, and this guy says, I saw you in a vision. I knew your name, and I knew where you lived. I knew the town where you lived, I knew what house you lived in, and I sent the men there. And Peter goes, okay. Okay, this is probably God, right? That's pretty amazing. We got repeated vision, circumstantial evidence. Right at the end of a vision, there's three guys at the door. Now he goes over to this house here. We got supernatural circumstantial evidence. We've got this sign from God. This guy knew where Peter was living. So, okay, I think God's working here. It's still difficult for Peter to kind of handle what's all happening here. It's such a ground shift for him. Verse 14 And Cornelius continues, he will tell you how you and everyone in your household can be saved. Now, as I began to speak, Peter continued, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as he fell on us at the beginning. Peter gets confirmation number five, which is as he starts to talk, the Holy Spirit falls and then they start to speak in tongues and love Jesus and confess their sins. And Peter goes, whoa, God's blessing this thing. That's the fifth piece of confirmation, God's not striking me dead. He's getting people saved. Things are happening in the spirit realm here. That's a fifth point of confirmation. Repeated, you know, visions, circumstantial evidence, supernatural, uh, you know, supernatural, uh, whatever, you know, confirmation. Getting all tied up here in message number four. And now we have fourth piece of confirmation here, which is the Holy Spirit blessing what's happening. So Peter's going, okay, okay. It's all adding up now, right? Now watch, he's gonna get a fifth piece just as he fell on us at the beginning. Then I thought of the Lord's words when he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. He gets a fifth piece of confirmation, which is he gets scripture to back up what he's experiencing now. You see that? That's a fifth piece. Now, he's, he's quoting Jesus directly. This is something he has heard Jesus say. It's not in the Bible yet simply because the New Testament hasn't been written yet, but that quote is going to end up in Acts chapter 1, verse 5. He's getting Scripture to back up what he's experiencing. Repeated vision, circumstantial evidence, Holy Spirit blessing. Now he's got Bible verses backing it up. He's got five pieces of confirmation. He's going to get one more and so get one more then I thought of the Lord's words when he said John baptized you with water but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit and since God gave these Gentiles the same gift he gave us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ who is I to stand in God's way now look at that here's the sixth piece when the others heard this they stopped objecting and began praising God here's the sixth piece of confirmation other spirit filled trusted believers come into agreement with him and they go yeah that is God That's the sixth piece. See, God doesn't want us. We talked a little bit about this last week. He doesn't want us being these islands to ourselves. And I can figure out all of God's will without the help of others. One of the main things we need to look for when we're looking for confirmation is God really doing something is what do other trusted, spirit-filled believers and church leaders think? And if they feel a unity in the spirit with me on this side, that is another really big indication that, uh, that the Holy Spirit is in this and that God is speaking to you. Six pieces of confirmation. I want to just, we'll go through now each of those six over the next two weeks. And I'll I'll go through two now briefly at the end of this message. And uh, we'll just go through each of them a little bit and we'll just look at how do these things look. We'll unpack them, okay? Um, Just before I get started, let me just say this. And I have to say this for all the C personalities out there, okay? Some of you don't know what the C personality is. It's someone who really loves rules and following things exactly. And so what I have to tell you here is this. Okay, following God and listening to God's voice and figuring out what he's saying to you is not a science, it's a relationship. Okay, discerning God's will for your life is is not a science, it's a relationship. Here's what I mean. I'm gonna give you these six points of confirmation over the next two weeks. And some of you, what you're gonna do is you're gonna go, okay, these are the six things. Every time I think I'm hearing God, I use these six things in this order and I just check them off and then that's how I know what God's saying. And that is not what I'm saying here. You do not need all six points of confirmation every time you hear from God. Sometimes you need more, sometimes you need less. Sometimes you need this one, sometimes you need these two. Different orders, all sorts of different things. It's a relationship, not a science. And some of you, if you think that you're going to need six points of confirmation for everything you think you're hearing from God, you're gonna, it's going to take you ten years to make decisions, and you're just not going to do anything for the rest of your life. Here's a, here's a principle, okay? Principle. Keep this with you, okay? The more risky the thing is that you think you're hearing in prayer, like it's very risky, like it could hurt you, it could hurt others, it's a big risk, okay? The more risky something is that you think you're hearing in prayer, the more confirmation, the more points of confirmation you need to look for. The less risky something is, the less confirmation you need to look for. Some things you don't need to look for confirmation at all. For example, okay, you've been married for a number of years, you haven't done a, a single romantic thing for your wife in like 17 years, And you feel like God's telling you in this message, or in prayer, I think God's saying that I need to do something romantic for my wife. You don't need to look for confirmation, okay? You're an idiot. You just need to do it, okay? Okay? You don't need to ask for confirmation. You know, you get something in prayer, and God reminds you of something you stole from someone years ago, and now you think he's telling you to go back and pay it back. The Bible tells you to pay back restitution. You don't need confirmation. Just go and pay it back. You don't need confirmation. God gives you an encouraging word to bless someone. You don't need confirmation to go and share that encouraging word with them or give them an note or say I love you. You don't need confirmation for any of those things. But if God's asking you to leave your job and take a step of faith or start this big ministry or do something else that's really risky, then you need to make sure that what you're hearing, you've got to make sure you're hearing accurately, you've got to make sure you're actually following God and not your own wishes or something else, then you're going to need a lot more points of confirmation. Okay? So now let's just start going through them, okay? So one point of confirmation you can look for again, and they don't necessarily need to go in this order or anything, but as I said before, words, thoughts, pictures that get repeated, it's a good chance God's trying to say something to you. There's just this niggling thought you can't get out of your mind, and it just, you don't even know when it started, but it's just there now, and it's always with you. And sometimes we call it a burden, like I said before. You've also you have this burden for a certain people group, or a certain ministry, or a certain age group, or something. And you just have this yeah, this thing is just building in you that maybe you need to get involved, or you need to serve, or you need to give, or something like that. It's probably God speaking to you. Okay? Or you come to church, you, you feel like you got, you, while in prayer or in your devotions, this thought comes to your mind, and then I can't tell you how many times after a service I've been out in the lobby and someone has just said to me, and it's happened many times, said, I just, you said the exact words what I was thinking this week during my devotion time. That's God speaking to you. It's getting repeated in your thoughts or through other people or at church or at cell. It's God trying to get your attention. I'll never forget uh, one time, a long time ago, at cell. Um, there was a guy in my cell, and he, he there, just from his past, God had done amazing things in his life, really growing in the Lord, and something from his past that he needed to go and pay back. I had no idea. And he started to get real convicted that he, about this situation, he needed to go and pay back. I had no idea. He didn't tell anyone, and uh, he was just working, whatever. He comes to the cell, and we just do our normal cell thing. We break up into pairs. We're praising God, worshiping God, praying, holding each other accountable, all sort of stuff. He never says anything. Towards the end of the meeting, we're just praying for each other. While we're praying for each other, I just get this thought, and the thought is to say to him the story of Zacchaeus. Like, not tell him the story, but just say the word Zacchaeus to him. And now, of course, you all know the story of Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus is the man, is the short little guy who climbed up in a tree, in a sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. You know that one? And then, uh, and then Jesus comes to his house, and then he gets saved, and then he pays everybody back, right? Now, I have no idea what's going on in his life. I just get this thought, Zacchaeus. And I'm, I'm thinking, oh, he's not short. And I'm not thinking at all about the stealing thing. I say, Lord, I don't have anything. Well, you know what? I'll just tell it to him. So I tell it to him. Now again, how do I tell this to him? I don't say, "Thus saith the Lord, you are Zacchaeus." You know, word from God, and we never do that. Okay, really dumb. Okay. I just say to him, you know, I just this thought while I'm praying. I, I think it's probably dumb, and probably it's totally off the mark, and blah blah. blah. I just preface it with about, and he just get on with it and tell me. And I said, I just keep getting this thought. Zacchaeus. I'm sure it means nothing to you. You can forget about it. And his, j- oh, his jaw is like this. And he motions me out. We step out because he didn't want other people to hear it. And, uh, and then he tells me what he's been getting convicted of. And I go, well, that's God then, okay? It's getting repeated to you in your thoughts, it's getting repeated to you through someone else's cell. That's God trying to get your attention. So is there a niggling thought you just can't get rid of? You might want to pay attention to that, okay? Second, second point of confirmation you can look for is God speaking to me. It's another thing we can look for and that is circumstances which come together with what we think we're hearing from God. Okay? So we look at Peter again. What happened? I just read it again. Acts 11, 10 to 11. This happened three times before the sheet and all it contained was pulled back up to heaven so he has this vision. And right at the end of the vision, verse 11, just then three men who had been sent from Caesarea arrived at the house where we were staying. So Peter's going, I wonder what that vision's all about. And right then circumstances come in line. So you got three Gentile men. Okay, well, well that's, that can't be coincidence. I don't have three Gentile men just popping up at my door every day. And this is the second point of confirmation that we can use, and we're trying to discern. What is God doing is you think you're hearing something from God, you've got this thought that won't go away, and all of a sudden, circumstances just start to come into line with, with this thing. And that, that can be God speaking, right? I remember one time, uh, you know, like preaching messages... Uh, usually it's pretty easy to know the topic. I mean, it's always hard to flesh it out. It's a lot of work to, to bring the message together. But from week to week, we usually know what we're talking about because we speak in series and we plan out and we pray together. And, and so usually at least at the beginning of the week, you know the direction you're going and then you've got to do the work to fill it in. The hardest messages are the ones where you have a message in the middle of nowhere. And you don't, it's in between series and it's somewhere and you just don't know what to preach about. Those are the, real, the hardest ones because now it's, like, it's not just fleshing it out. You've got to figure out what you're doing first. And I remember once, a couple years ago, I, was, I had one of these in the middle of nowhere messages. And I'm like, what am I going to speak on? And I'm praying, and the week's starting to march on, and I'm like, oh. And uh, literally, it, I mean, let's just call it what it was, it was panic, okay? And you, there's a deadline looming, and you can't call in late when you're preaching, because you guys will all just show up anyway. And so, I remember being in my office this one time, like, God, okay? And I had these two options. I don't even remember what the one option was, because I, I didn't end up preaching it. The other one was uh, uh, meditating on scripture. So I had these two things, and I'm like, Lord, what is it? Oh, and I, I don't know where to start, and I would just get started on one, and no, it's not that one. I would get started, no, oh, it's not that one. And so I'm pacing in my office, and my heart rate is up, and I'm not cholesterol, probably not, but whatever it is that have, your anxiety is up, right? And, uh, and I'm like, God, what is it? you got to show me, you got to show me. And then nature calls. I'm like, well, I've got to go to the bathroom. I'm going to come back to this God, because you got to tell me. i got to get started on this thing. So I head to the bathroom, okay, so I'm just in the middle of praying to Jesus. Jesus, what is it? Is it meditating on Scripture? Is it this other one? I walk out of my office, the first cubicle I come by, there's a guy reading a book in a cubicle, one of our staff, and it says, and the title of the book is Eat This Book. It's a book about meditating on scripture. I walk by, and I just happen to look in, and I happen to, he just happens, I mean, he could have had it in his bag, he could have had it in his desk, he just happens to have it out like this, and he's looking at the title, he just happens to have this, after I just finished praying this, I just happen to walk past his cubicle, and I say, give me this. Because <laughs> I outrank him. So I just, whoa! I flip through the introduction, and a couple thoughts, and I'm like, that's why." and so, that was for me confirmation, it was just circumstances, I'm looking, I didn't need all six points. I just took one there because I was desperate, okay? Um, plus, you know, it wasn't that risky. If you preach the wrong one, the church isn't going to burn down, but it just, that was my confirmation, poo, and then you take off and you go on that, okay? Now, sometimes you need more confirmation, right? Um, my call to ministry, 2001. My wife, LaDonna and I graduate from university, okay? In June, we get married, and then, as I've talked about before, uh, the two of us went overseas to Korea to teach for a year, and one of the big goals we had was to figure out what God wants us to do with our lives. And as I've shared before, in years previous to this, I had always said, you know, I'm not going to become a pastor. That's not what I'm going to do. But in the year leading up to 2001, I started to get this niggling suspicion. It's one of these thoughts you can't shake, and it's getting repeated over and over and over again. It's coming through other people. It's coming through within myself. I can't leave it. It's just thought over and over again, you're, you're going to be a pastor. You're going to be in full-time ministry. And I'm going, okay, well, so, okay. And I'm not super pumped about it, but I'm just starting to have this thought, right? And it's always there, it's always there, it's always there, it's always there. Okay, we're going to go away to Korea for a year. And one of the things that was keeping me from just saying yes to the call was that I felt like I needed to have this powerful experience with God where he calls me into ministry. Because, you know, there's all these famous pastors and evangelists, and many of them have these amazing calls where God just reached down and plucked them out and said, you're going to be in ministry. And I said, I need a call like that because everybody gets one. Even Pastor Ray has one, okay? He's flying planes, no desire to be a pastor. He loves God. He's following God. He goes to a big conference with thousands of people in the States. And at the end of one of the sessions, a guy gets up and says, someone here is being called to ministry. And then the Holy Spirit just gets a hold of him. And he's just about passing out in the pew and all this sort of stuff. You've heard the story before. And I'm like, I want one of those, okay? I don't just want repeated thoughts. If it's you, I want a calling. So I go to, I go to Korea and I'm thinking, I want a calling. I'm going to get a calling if he's calling me this. And if not, I'm going to do something else. And so anyway, but I can't get rid of this thought. So maybe it's God speaking, right? I just can't. This thought is always just all there. Finally, God backs me into a corner. And he manipulates me into having a particular conversation and saying something to him. And he manip- manipulates me into this. I love how God works. Because he's having a conversation with you. And then he'll make you say something, which will then turn into what he uses to give you confirmation. And he backs me into a corner in a devotion time, and I say to him, God, I'm not saying yes to ministry because you haven't me a, given me a call. And he manipulated me into saying the following thing. I said, all I have is a desire to teach your word and your laws. That's all I have, God. I don't have a call. I just have a desire to teach your word and your laws. And he goes, <laughs> Okay? Because then I'm reading my devotions. This is only a day or two later. I'll put it up on a screen. Ezra chapter 7, verse 10. I'm reading about Ezra's call. So remember, I just said to God, I don't. You have to give me a call because all I have is a desire to teach your laws. And I read Ezra 7:10 within a day or two. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules to Israel. And that verse just, there it is. Oh, and I'm like, that is my call. That's what some people get. This other call, Ezra and people like me, we get the call of this desire, and the call is that the desire to do this. So I realized, Kate, God is calling me and I just need to step out and say yes. But now there's one thing left to do. It's like, I don't even know where to start. I haven't been trained for this. I just spent thousands of dollars, God, on learning math for the last four years. (laughs) And I don't have Bible college. I don't have any connections. And it's like, uh, of course, now all of you look at me now, no connections. Look at you working for your dad at Southland, right? And it's obvious that you were just going to go work at Southland. Well, at that time, Southland was very tiny, they weren't hiring lots of people, and the Dirksen to parishioners ratio was already too high at that point. So there was no, nobody was thinking, I wasn't thinking, nobody was thinking me going to Southland. And so I'm not advertising to people, I'm not telling people, I'm going to go into ministry now. This is just between me and LaDawn. I told her I got this verse, I think I'm called into ministry. And she's going, oh great. But uh, anyway, so I just said to God, I said, my next fleece is this, Lord, I don't even know where to start. Do you want me to go to school? Do you want me to get a job? I don't even know where to apply. What do I do to go into ministry? So I guess it's up to you. If it's really you speaking to me, and I think it is, but if it's really you speaking to me, then something's going to have to come up. And you know that within just a little bit of time, it was maybe a couple of months, and I get a phone call in Korea. We had this little apartment there. I get a phone call from the elders uh, from that time, here at the church, here at Southland, and the person who was working part-time, leading the young adults at that point, was only going to lead for one year. They didn't want to lead after that because of some life situations. They had other people they could hire here. They, for whatever reason, they called and they just, I haven't told anyone I'm going into ministry. They just know that all I signed was a one-year contract in Korea. So they just phoned. For what, again, it's God working through all these sorts of things, right? All of a sudden, circumstances start to come in line with what you're hearing. And I get this call out of the blue. I'm not looking for a job. And they call me and say, would you want to work at the church here next year? I'm going, like, Unbelievable. I've got this niggling thought. I've got scripture. And now circumstances are coming together. You start to pray about it. And I mean, now you look back 10 years later and the rest is history, right? Now I look back and I go, wow, that was God's hand. But you ask me now, at the time, was I 100% sure of how things were going to turn out? No. Let me tell you something. You're never 100% sure. You're never 100% sure. There's still faith in this. But somewhere in all this you get enough confirmation and in your spirit you're like, Lord, I'm trying not to be stupid but I have enough confirmation now I'm just trying to follow you and so eventually you just go, okay, I'm just going to try this and you take a step of faith. You never get to 100%. It's not like you say I'm never going to do anything until I have 100% confirmation. You'll never ever get it. But you get enough confirmation and then you just trust, God, I've looked for confirmation. I'm not trying to be dumb and now I'm just going to need you to protect me and keep me safe. And you take a step of faith. That's what following God is all about. Bow your heads and me, close your eyes. We'll look at four more next week. Heavenly Father, we want to hear your voice more. Lord, I just share my stories here today because I'm the one preaching. There's many people here today who have better stories than I do. And Lord, as a church, Lord, we want to grow in this. We want to grow in hearing your voice. We want to grow in obedience, Lord, to your voice. Give us faith. Lord, There are some people here today that they actually have enough confirmation already. They need to just obey. Give them the strength to obey this week. There's others of us here, Lord. We're right in the middle of a situation. We're stretched. We don't know what to do. We're in agony. We're afraid of doing the wrong thing. We're trusting in you. Lord, I pray for those people. Give them a little more confirmation this week. Help them to know. Give them revelation. What is it you're asking them to do? We pray all these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen.